Like that, what we just sang should be enough. Like we can, we can leave now. We just sang the gospel. We're good. So there's nothing I can do that is going to convince you to honor worship in Jesus. And you know what? Jesus is worthy of all your honor, worship, and praise. And he's not begging you to worship him this morning. He is on the throne. <laughs> He is risen. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so I, I thought of this passage, not typically an Easter passage, oh, but it's an Easter passage. The whole verse, the whole psalm is, it will resonate with you, but really it's Psalm 46.10. God says this, Jesus says this, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So, so Jesus is reigning supreme right now, and he's not nervous about this moment. He, he's not chewing on his fingernails. He hasn't had any leadership team meetings this week to figure out what churches he's really going to move in. He's not looking down and, and seeing some churches right now and saying, Holy Spirit, come here, come here, come here. Look at down there. They, 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 they've got lights. They got lasers. They got fog machines. You love that stuff. Go just inhabit that. Go do that. Like, he's not doing that right now. Like, he, he's not fretting. He's not saying, man, I hope Mark doesn't mess up and say something stupid. Because he knows I will. <laughs> and he's still on the throne, Right? Like, that's the first thing we have to bring to this. So wherever you're at this morning, whether you believe him or not, the truth is that he reigns supreme. He's worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. The resurrection seals, signs, and delivers that for us. And whether you, you, you decide to do that or not, he's still going to be on the throne. He's still going to reign. And everyone will glorify Jesus. You say, well, I don't even believe in Jesus. Well, Jesus believes in you. He created you. And, and Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 2, he, he says uh, just this humility of Christ as he emptied himself and he took on human flesh and he died even a death on the cross. And then it says, but at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so there's two ways. Your life will glorify Jesus. Every person on your left and right and every person you've seen is an immortal. You, you've never met a mortal person. We, we looked at it at the catechism. Everyone has immortality and everyone will glorify Jesus. Now, you will either be a trophy of his grace and mercy in glad submission to him, repenting and trusting him, and forever and ever get to rejoice in that moment as a trophy of his grace and mercy, or you will be a picture of his justified wrath. And you will glorify him in that as well. Jesus will be glorified. That's the first thing that, that we need to have in this mindset coming in here this morning. But I also recognize that, you know, uh, that there, you, maybe you, you came here and you, you, you don't believe. You're like, hey, I, I've made a deal with my spouse that twice a year we'll do something religious and uh, you came up on a Google search, so we're here. Uh, or maybe you're like, I heard there'd be tacos, uh, which isn't a bad reason to come. I mean, I, I'm not knocking you. There will be tacos afterwards, so, uh, you know. Oh, that's part of God's grace to all humanity. Uh, but, but maybe here, I just want to recognize that um, 
I get it. If you're like, uh, really? It's the 21st century where we're really, do these people really believe that someone died and, and rose again and that in that, uh, that they have salvation? Like that seems kind of silly. Well, I get that because the scripture we're going to look at today is going to agree with you. If it's not true, then it is silly. Like, we got better things to do on a spring Sunday morning than gather here and, and sing make-believe songs. The Scripture's going to agree with you in that if it's not true. But if it is true, then that changes everything. Now, I don't want to do what is often the temptation to do, is uh, try to prove the resurrection to you. Like, there's a, there's a mountain of evidence that if you're intellectually honest at all, uh, we'd love to walk through with you and meet with you. I'd, I'd be willing to do all that. But that's, that, that's not really my point this morning, is to prove the resurrection. Though I think the passage we're going to look at has some evidence to it that uh, is quite extraordinary. But, but there's, a, there's other people here today that uh, maybe you're a believer and you're like, yeah, I, I check all those boxes. I, I believe in the catechism. I believe all that. But you don't know really why. Like, why is it such a big deal that Jesus died and Jesus came back from the tomb? Like, okay, maybe you can get that he died for your sins. But, but why is the resurrection such a big deal? I, I want to contend that there are, there are limitless implications that come out of the truth of the resurrection. And I just want to look at five of them this morning. The implication, the massive implications that not only did Christ die for us, but that he rose again three days later. So if you have a Bible, you can uh, turn your smartphone on or turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's going to write to the church at Corinth, and I'll say a few things about that. But, but I also want to just say this, like, Sometimes the objection is, well, uh, you know, some Christians got together. I read the Da Vinci Code, and in the fourth century, they just kind of decided what was Christianity. And, and I'm just saying, like, if you have, like, no reputable scholar, atheist scholar, believes that. I'm just, they don't. Like, Christianity was not invented in the fourth century. Christianity came about on the resurrection, uh, the disciples, the believers, they, they were not super suggestible. They were not kind of waiting for it. They, they weren't at the tomb on, on Easter Sunday morning with a countdown. They were like, 10, 9, 8, cue the sun, 7, 6, 5, ta-da. Like there was, there was no expectation. Everybody that went to the tomb was surprised that it was empty. Or, or to put it another way, nobody expected no body. Nobody expected to see no body. They weren't hyper-suggestible. They should have been because Jesus told them time and time and time again, hey, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I'm going to come back to life after three days. And they're like, ah, that doesn't make sense. And so he told them again, and he told them again. Oh, I need my notes. Thank you. He told them again, and he told them again. And so... Um, they, didn't, they still weren't ready for it. As good Jews, they believed that a day would come when everybody would rise again, but they had nowhere in their context of a Messiah that would be crucified, a Messiah that would die, and a Messiah that would be resurrected before everyone else. It just wasn't in their system of thinking. So nobody expected to see no body. Well, again, so you might say, well, the Christians just kind of 
came up with this tradition over century, over century, generation after generation. And we don't really even know when the gospels were written. And, and there's this argument of maybe it kind of de- developed over time. Well, again, if you are willing to do just a little bit of Google research, you'll find even from uh, secular atheistic historians and scholars, anything worth their salt, they'll say a few things. They'll say that the Apostle Paul was a real person in time and place in the first century. That, that Paul, more than Jesus, ha- is credited for the spread of Christianity in the ancient world. And that Paul was uh, radically converted from Judaism to Christianity And his life validated it because he did the most dangerous thing you could do in the first century. He he got on ships and began to travel the world to tell the story of a crucified Messiah. And so he would would go into towns and he'd find a synagogue and he he would try to tell the Jews, hey, Messiah has come. He's been crucified. But don't worry, he, he came back to life. And for the vast majority are like, you're crazy. That's not how God would work. And so he'd turn to the Gentiles and he'd turn to these pagans and he would say, uh, there, there is a savior in the world. He's a Jewish guy that died on a cross and rose again. And the vast majority are like, you're crazy. But a few of them believed and churches were planted. So, so scholars, atheists or believers alike agree that Paul was a real person. And that in the year 55 AD, he uh, wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. Now, some of, like, real liberal scholars, and they debate some of Paul's letters. Like, we're not sure, is 2 Corinthians part of his or whatever? But everyone agrees that 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, written in 55 AD. So if you can just use your thinking for a little bit, in 32 AD, about that time, maybe a year or two on either side, Jesus, uh, everyone agrees, uh, was a real person and he really did die on a cross. Now what they disagree is what happened after that. But from 32 to about 55, that's our gap right now from this letter. And Paul, we know that he uh, planted the church in Corinth in about 52 AD. So in 52 AD, he planted the church, and he's going to remind them of what he said then. So it's a 20-year gap, not generation after generation, not century after century, but 20 years. So if you're 25, 20 years seems like a long time ago. But for me, in 1998, I was graduating from CSU. I was entering into ministry, went to Okinawa for the first time. I was dating Jennifer. Uh, I got my first job at, as a financial advisor at Oppenheimer Funds. I remember a lot of things with great detail in that moment. And, and so do you, if you're old enough. So it's not exactly a long time for a legend to develop, but nonetheless, there's some more. So Paul plants this church in Corinth, and he's gone. But he hears word back that they're, they're, they've started to distort the gospel, They started to get things wrong. They started to feel the pressure of the culture surrounding them. And the pressure was this, in two ways. One, the cross seems kind of foolish. They were living in Corinth in in a Roman territory, and they all knew that the Romans brought the cross to torture criminals. And so when they would tell their friends and neighbors, hey, uh, there's a savior of the world, he died on a cross, everyone was like, you're an idiot. Are you serious? And so there was this pressure. It's the same pressure we feel. There was this pressure to just kind of water down the cross or abandon the cross. And and Paul will remind them them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. 
But to those that are, of us that are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's the first thing. Christianity isn't cool. It's never been cool, and that's okay. We should stop trying to make the message of the cross cool. It's not cool, but it saves us. It's the power of God. So it doesn't matter how tight your worship leader's jeans are. It doesn't matter whether or not we have a la- You don't have tight jeans. I'm just saying, no matter how hard we try to be cool, man, tell this to your unbelieving neighbor. They're going to be like, that's not cool. Or God will open their eyes and they'll say, I want that too. So that's the first pressure. The cross isn't cool. Never will be cool. And by the way, that's okay. Christianity has always thrived on the margins of society. So all the hand-wringing we do about the decline of America and Christianity, guess what? The cross is not covered with the the American flag. The cross stands on its own. And when, when Christians are pushed to the margin, they have always thrived. They continue to thrive today. In places like Iran and China and otherwise, the, the church is exploding. You say, well, it's not even legal to be a Christian there. Well, maybe we could chill out in America and realize God's on the throne, no matter what. Well, that's the first pressure. The cross isn't cool. The second one is the resurrection. That seems kind of foolish as well. It's one thing for someone to die on a cross, but you're going to say uh, he came back from the grave. See, the, the, the cultural air that they breathed was called Platoism, Platonic. So it still affects and probably affects you in the church today. It's a curse in the church. And Plato taught this, that things that are physical are evil. Things that are spiritual are good. So what do you do with the resurrection? The resurrection says, and God says, no, 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 no. The spiritual is good, and the physical is very good as well. That's the doctrine of creation. So so your body, the body you have right now, God really likes. And in fact, that body is going to be resurrected. It will be resurrected a combo physical spiritual body. This is why I don't get it when Christians are like, I don't care what you do with my body when I die. Can God resurrect cremated people? Absolutely. Can God resurrect someone who died in a bomb? Absolutely. He can do all that, and he is going to do all that. But it's Plato's thought that says, oh, don't worry about the body. I'm just going to be spiritual in heaven someday. But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is God's not going to just wipe out the earth and create a whole new earth. In that case, sin would have won. Satan would have won if God would have had to start over. No, the resurrection tells us that he is restoring all things. And as Christ's body was restored, your body's going to be restored. Oh, it'll be, there won't be any aches or pains. There won't be any uh, things that we don't like about our bodies. But it will be a real flesh and bone body just like Jesus' resurrected body. So honor your bodies because you honor God because he created it and it was good. But, but they, they, they didn't like that pressure. Like, you mean God died and he came back physical flesh and bone? That doesn't match with what Plato says. And Paul's like, who cares what Plato says? Let me tell you what God says. And so Paul's going to remind the Corinthians of what the truth is and why we celebrate today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says this, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Remember, he was reminding of what he told them three years ago. So in year 52, 20 years after the resurrection, he says, of which, it, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance, or this is the most important thing in the universe. I delivered you to what I also received. So Paul didn't make it up in 52 AD. He received it from someone else prior to that. And he tells us later on. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I'll unpack that in just a second. It says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am." And his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul is reminding them of the gospel. But, but what Paul is doing is he's doing a few things. He he's actually is making an apologetic argument that this is true. It isn't a wish fulfillment. Christianity isn't belief in belief. It's belief in solid, objective evidence. And so one of them is, well, several in here. First of all, he says, Jesus actually appeared. He appeared to this person and that person, this group of people and that group of people. He appeared to over 500 people at one time. And then look what he said. He said, and most of whom are still alive. So in the year 55 AD, most of these people were still alive, although some have fallen asleep. His, his, he's saying, if you don't believe me, go ask them, go talk to them. So if you don't believe me, go, go um, interview them, go, go find them out. He says, but some of them have fallen asleep. Why? What does that mean? It's a euphemism for death, but not really because Christians know that well, what, what, what happens to someone that is asleep? They wake up. <laughs> like that, that's the Christian term for people that die in Christ because they're going to wake up again. But there's more evidence here. First of all, he says, I deliver to you of what, that is, of what is first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. So, most people believe that this is the oldest Christian creed. This is the first catechism. That Paul, this isn't unique with Paul. Paul isn't writing this and he hasn't come up with it. He's actually quoting the oldest creed that dates probably within a, a few years of the resurrection. See, in the first century, the vast majority were illiterate. If you lived in a town, maybe 15% were, could read, but the most, most couldn't. So Paul would write these letters, and he would send them to the churches, and they would read the letter out loud in community. And then some that could read and write would write that down, and they'd send it to other churches to read his letter, and they would exchange letters, and many letters were exchanged. That's why we have thousands of manuscripts from the first century testifying to this truth. This isn't, this isn't like Homer's Odyssey where we have manuscripts 1,500 years later. This is within a generation or two we have these letters. Well, he's quoting uh, the first creed. There's a kind of staccato rhythm to it. We do that too. We say, uh, those that can't read and write, what do we do? We go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, N, 
Z, we have this kind of rhythm to it, right? And I still do that when I'm trying to figure out what the order of the letters are. I still have that. So we do it. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. So you got that. Now I know my ABCs. Soon I'll have my PhD. Right? Now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have my PhD. Now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have my... Yeah, that's right. So you already learned it, even though that's not in the original. That's not, that's not right. But you learned it because it, of the rhythm of it. And that's what this is. That's what Paul's doing. He's, I'm reminding you of what all Christians around the world believe. So, so to put it another way in our terminology is, is simply this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the dead and was seen. That's the central claim of Christianity. It is the cap in the archstone arch of Christianity. You take away the resurrection, there is no Christianity. In fact, Paul will say later on, if there is no resurrection, we are the greatest fools in the world. Like, you're idiots. <laughs> like, why are you doing this? Nothing matters. Just eat, drink, tomorrow we die. But this does matter. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose from the dead and he was seen. This isn't wish fulfillment. This isn't belief and belief. This is we saw him. We touched him. We felt it. We saw him eat fish. We saw him by the side of, of the lake. Like this transforms the world and continues to do so today. Well, I want to talk about five implications of the resurrection here this morning. There are many more, but I just want to look at five. So again, in verse three, it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So the, the first implication is this, that our sins are serious. Our sins are serious. They had to be dealt with. And we couldn't deal with them on our own. That, that when we look at the story, we see a, a violence to it that was necessary. So whenever possible, I want to just warn you to not make a God a figment of your imagination. Not, not make a God that is all pixie dust and happiness and good feelings. A God who is just love but has no justice and mercy. Because that one, that God does not exist. Two, that God really in the end is not loving because love demands justice. Love demands wrath. And so the Bible says that Jesus dealt with our sins, and he dealt severely with our sins, and that our sins are serious. We looked at this, if you were here on Friday night, all of that was because our sin is serious. And so let's worship God for who he is and know that our sins were serious and that Christ has dealt with them. Number two, the curse has been reversed. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This, this point, number two, might be the most important point. Because when you look at, at what's going on in the text, you, you see that uh, from the very beginning, uh, things went wrong. Look at verse 17. Drop down to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Drop down to verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ 
shall all be made alive. So Genesis 2, chapter, uh, verse 17, God in creation creates the world, creates Adam and Eve, creates all things, and it is good. And he gives them one command, and the command is this. And if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we turn the page in chapter 3. The sin, sin enters in the world, curses enters into the world, uh, and, and forever, uh, not forever, but the curse has, has plagued all the cosmos. Death has entered into the world. Suffering has entered into the world. It is the foreign invaders that do not belong in creation. So sin feels awkward. Sin feels out of place, and it should because it wasn't designed to be here. And every funeral you will ever go to, there is an element to it that says, this is not right. I don't care if grandma was 99, loved Jesus, had a great life, died. There is something in that moment, there's the decay in her body and the death and no life in her bones that says, this is not how things are meant to be. We were under this curse. It was our greatest problem. But even in Genesis 3, God promises a day will come where the curse will be reversed. And the curse, the down payment on that reversal happens on the resurrection. Without the resurrection, the curse is still here. Without the resurrection, it means death still reigns. It means sin still abounds. And you say, well, there is still death, Mark. There is still sin. There's still uh, oppression, injustice, and, and slavery, and poverty. All those things are still present. But the down payment has been made. And God has put his spirit in his people. You say, well, there's still injustice. There's still poverty. There's still people that, that haven't been heard the gospel. I say, yes, dummy. It's on you. <laughs> and it's on me. Like, we were not made for 3,000 television channels and a million uh, Facebook posts. We were made for so much more. We were made for mission. And I'm getting ahead of myself because that's one of the points. So let's go to point number three. Well, let me, let me just say one more. Romans 4.25 says this. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, so we weren't just justified because of what he did on the cross. The resurrection justifies us as well. Without the resurrection, the cross is just wishful thinking. But the resurrection proves what happened on the cross, that death has been defeated and sin has been defeated. Number three, salvation is found in no one but Jesus. No one but Jesus. He says in verse five, then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Now, now remember, if, if you know the story uh, of what happened, uh, last week Matthew talked about how uh, Peter would deny Jesus, and, and Peter was like, no, 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 I won't do it, man, you're my bro, We're not, I'm not going to do that, I'm with you, and, and, and Jesus is like, dude, before the alarm clock goes off, you're going to have bailed out on me. He's like, no, I'll die for you. And what do we see? Of course, he does deny Jesus three times. The third time, he's like, bleepity bleep, level 10 cursing, I don't know the man. Yeah, he, he just didn't, he, he does what Jesus says. Isn't that a funny thing? Whatever Jesus says is going to happen, happens. I'm going to die and come back to life. It happens. It's like he's God. And so um, he, Jesus, the, the, where are the disciples uh, after, after the resurrection? Well, they're not at the tomb. It's Mary Magdalene. 
It's women, which by the way, if you're going to make up the story in a culture that has such a low view of women that it can't even testify to in a court of law, you don't put women as the heroes of the story. I mean, if you're going to make up the story, you also kind of put yourself as the hero, but the disciples are kind of often low-functioning morons, right? Like they're not, they're not, that, they're not the sharpest crowns in the box. They're fishermen. They're terrified. They're, they're locked away in an upper room. Why are they terrified? You would be terrified too. Because crucifixion is, is, well, we get a word for it. It's excruciating. It's Latin for out of the cross. And what happened to your leader would likely happen to you as well. So they're locked away, cowered with doors. They have no courage. They have no boldness. And yet the, the, we know that the resurrection alone can account for their transformation in just a matter of days. Back in Acts chapter 4, John and Peter, who were terrified but now have seen the resurrected Jesus, have seen his power and authority, are going around and they're doing what Jesus did. They healed someone. They healed a lame beggar and the authorities who had just put Jesus to death. Just a few days prior, gather them in. So these are the people that you should be on your face begging for mercy. Please don't do to us what you did to Jesus. That's not how we see them now. They've been transformed by the resurrection. Verse 8 of chapter 4, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no other, no one else For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So they understood the the implication of the resurrection. No one gets to heaven by good works. No one gets to heaven by an eightfold path of enlightenment. No one gets to heaven by following the five pillars of truth. No one gets to heaven by just being a good boy and girl. Salvation is found in no other name. Think about that for a moment. They recognize the truth of this. If there was any other way to the Father, like it's popular in our day, there's many paths up the mountain. Say, fine, if that's true, you have to take Jesus out of that equation. Because how cruel would it have been if there were other ways to get to God for God to torture his son in your place and my place? No, it was the only way. And Jesus is the only way, and that is very good news because we did not deserve a way. No one deserves a way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All deserve the justified wrath of God, but there is a way, and it's through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Well, let's look at number four. Uh, Jesus' atonement was sufficient for your sin. Look at what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 8, or Chapter 15, verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul, known as Saul in the, in the Palestine. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me was not in vain. So, so you might be here this morning and say, well, you don't know what, what I've done. You, you don't know what I've thought. You, you don't know how wicked my heart is. I'll say, you're right, I don't know. First of all, I'm going to guess that uh, whatever your thing is, as awful as it may be, uh, we, we probably have people here that have tasted the mercy and grace of God that would make your sins look like junior varsity, fourth string, tight end. Say, no, 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 I, I, I'll clean myself up and then maybe I'll come to God. You can't do it. You can't do it. Listen, I'm guessing on your resume isn't systematically hunting it down God's people and murdering them. It was on Paul's resume. And Paul says, I'm not worthy to be called a disciple, but grace, grace has come to me. And if it can come to me, it can come to you. There's no one outside of God's reach. So whether you're a self-righteous Sunday school teacher or a stripper, there's grace for both of you. And there's mercy for you. You can't out the grace of the cross. And the idea is idolatry. The idea is that you're the one guy, that your sin goes beyond the reach of the cross. That's just putting more on you than you're, you're worth. So, so stop it. Repent. Say, I believe you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. And finally... The fifth one, the resurrection fuels our courage, joy, and mission. It fuels our courage, our joy, worship, and mission. There you go. Um, so look what happened. In verse 5, it says, He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Into all the apostles. Now that's interesting. James. There, there was a disciple named James, but that's not the James he's talking about. He's talking about the half-brother of Jesus. You know, Jesus had brothers and sisters, right? <laughs> um, and, and they thought he was crazy, which is understandable. I mean, what would it take for you to believe one of your family members is God? So James thought he was crazy. But Jesus, in his mercy towards James, to a brother that he loved and grew up with, after his resurrection, he made a special trip. And he's like, look, James, <laughs> see my scars, see the hole in my ankle, see the hole in my side, but I am flesh and bone. And James is transformed. He's transformed. He, he becomes a leader of the church. He becomes one of the first martyrs of the church, church tradition tells us tells us that he was thrown off the temple and he didn't die. And so they, the crowd gathered and took a large stone and bashed his head in. I mean, what would it take for you to go from my brother's crazy to I'll die for him? Because I believe he died and rose again. Well, the, the resurrection fuels this courage. It fuels this joy, this worship, and it fuels our mission. Go back to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, I don't think that just means they recognized that they had been with Jesus before his resurrection. 
I think they're like, these guys are different. Something has changed. These are the same guys that were terrified and now having seen and felt Jesus, everything changed. What can you do to a person that does not fear death, who's looked the resurrection in the eyes? There's nothing you could do. So it fuels their mission. Look at verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have believed. No, that's not what it says. It says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're like, this isn't just what we believe. We, we touched him. We felt him. We heard him. We saw him. And so we're going to keep talking that. And they would all pay a terrible price for it. Peter would be crucified upside down. The rest of the disciples would be martyred. John, was, was, they attempted to martyr him. They boiled him in oil, but he, he didn't die. That so freaked him out. They sent him off to Patmos in exile. And then he writes Revelation. So there you get that. But it, it fuels their joy. It fuels their courage. It fuels their mission. You, you, you've been given a life full of purpose and meaning. We weren't made for comfort, security, and safety. We were made for a mission, a dangerous mission, a mission that will affect all of eternity. And so how should we respond? I think the first thing is that if you're here, maybe you're for the first time recognizing, actually, I think, I think that this is true. Let me just tell you this. The Bible says that God revealed that to you. You didn't just think of that yourself. So respond to that. Say, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin in my place. And I trust you. I believe that he rose again and conquered death in the grave. And one day I will, I will reign with Jesus forever. Today you can do that. Today you can become what the Bible calls a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You can be filled with a mission full of purpose and joy and worship. Now, for the rest of us as Christians... Considering these implications, what should that do? I think it's one thing. It should cause us to have exploding joy. Some of you need to tell your face that the resurrection is true. Maybe tell your hands that the resurrection is true. Praise the Lord. But, but it should fill us with joy. So I read this book this week by N.T. Wright called uh, Surprised by Hope. And at the end of the book, he, he gives some encouragement for churches. How do we deal with Easter better? <clears throat> he says we have this 40 days of Lent, for those of you that come from a high church background, this day of, these days of kind of somber reflection, repentance, and he says that's all well and good, but then we have one day of celebration. It doesn't, it doesn't match. He says Christians should be the most explodingly joyful party animals on the planet. He says, at the very least, when Easter Sunday comes, that should kick off an eight-day party, champagne at every breakfast. It should have your neighbors over. It should, it should just be this time of, man, you are really going all out on your, your block parties all week. What's up with that? Well, Jesus was dead, and he is, and he is alive. And so we're going to party. 
And he says, in the same way that, that there's 40 days from Lent to Easter, there's 40 days from Easter to the Ascension. And that should be kind of the opposite of Lent. That should be a time of discovery, of exploration, take up a hobby, have some fun, go out to meet your neighbors, serve the city. This should be a time of great lightness and joy. So let's, let's have some joy. Let's have some joy. Christ died for our sins and was buried. Christ rose again and was seen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I pray that uh, your spirit would stir in us an affection for you. Lord, as we, we believe and receive eternal life, you conquered death and the grave on our behalf. Lord, I want to pray particularly for those that maybe for the very first time have had their eyes opened by your spirit. Lord, the Holy Spirit, would you just lead them to the cross, lead them to forgiveness, lead them to trusting in you. God, and, and to whatever degree we can as a faith family, come alongside them and encourage them in their new life and discovery of Christ. Lord, help us to do that. Father, for the rest of us, God, may we be marked by joy. May we be marked by parties. May we be marked by the life of our neighborhood. May we be marked by all the things because we have an eternal hope and it, it comes out of your resurrection power. So Lord Jesus, we pray in the matchless name of the risen Savior. Amen. Amen.